Hi, I'm Jake Gramlich. I'm on our church council, and I'm happy to bring you the reading uh, this morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom agreed that the king should establish an ordinance that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. When he got down on his knees, he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they went and said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came, said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hey there, Christ Church Vienna. So we're looking at Daniel chapter 6. This is probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Most of you know about it, Daniel in the lion's den. And yet, as you read Daniel chapter 6, one of the things you figure out pretty quickly is it's less about Daniel and more about these other guys who are trying to trap Daniel, and yet they can't seem to do so. So we are now several chapters and actually many years beyond Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king in the first few chapters of uh, uh, the book of Daniel. He was the one with the dream and the fiery furnace. But now we are on to beyond uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son to the next king named King Darius. King Darius becomes king of Babylon, and he sets over all of these officials, all of these officials to give governance to the the land. But Daniel is one of the top three. 
and he's so good that the king is going to put him in charge of everything, basically be the one in charge of everything. And all of the other officials were jealous and wanted to get rid of him. And so we read in verses 4 and 5 what they tried to do. Then they, these high officials, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he, Daniel, was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So think about what's going on here. These guys, 100, 120 of them, many of them, they want to get rid of Daniel. And so what they do is they investigate his life. And he's got a long history. He'd been in governance for years and years, 70 years by this time, and they could find nothing. It says there was no ground for complaint with him with regards to the kingdom, meaning he had never done anything wrong in his governance, in any of his past history. And he was a person without error or fault that they could find. The only thing they could get him in trouble with is if they made it illegal to worship the God that he loved so much. And so they did. What they did was they set up a new law. They set up a new law that said for 30 days, one month's time, for one short season, you can only pray to King Darius. You can pray to no other god. And anybody found praying to any other god besides the king would be thrown in a pit of lions. And so we read what Daniel does when he finds out that this has happened, starting in verse 10. So Daniel finds out that the document has been signed. This has gone into law. And then what does he do? Verse 10, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. So a couple of things to look at here as we're looking at these verses is Daniel uh, hears about this law. And then what does he do? He does what he always does. So he, he has an earnest devotional life. He is daily cultivating his intimacy and trust with God. There are four words used with regards to his prayers. It's prayers and thanksgiving, petition and plea. And the commentators suggest that these are showing the full gamut of the way that we bring our prayers before God. That prayers are intercessions. He's praying for other people, possibly the king, Babylon, Jerusalem. He's praying for others. In thanksgiving, he's remembering who God is. He's giving thanks for the nature of God and God's saving acts in the past, recalling again and again the goodness and faithfulness of God. Then it says he brings petition. Petition was actually formal liturgical prayer. And as he's praying, he's praying in a window, basically setting an example for his Jewish believers to pray towards God, towards Jerusalem, continuously, regularly, three times a day. And those petitions would have been like our prayer for purity or uh, the Lord's Prayer, the sort of thing people could have joined in. Acknowledging that God is not just his personal God, but is a God for the people, and historically so. 
And lastly, he brings pleas, which are his heartfelt petitions or longings for God. It's falling on the grace and mercy of God. It's acknowledging his dependence on God. So what we have here is he has cultivated a full gamut devotional life, and it's his habit. Three times a day, heading towards Jerusalem, he practiced this in a way that um, his beliefs matched his doing. His practices were born out of what he actually believed. And he did it in a way that was private, but also with that open window and the kind of person he was, it was also public. He was not afraid to be seen praying to God on his own. The crazy thing with this is the amount of courage it took for him to do this. I mean, after the king's decree that said you can only pray for 30 days to King Darius, what is... What does he do? What does Daniel do? Well, he does what he always did. He does the same thing he does every single day. He goes to God in prayer three times a day, and he keeps doing it, even though this could get him in trouble. Where did this courage come from? One of the things I think we see in Daniel's story, and it's true throughout the Bible, is courage is not natural. Courage is not natural to anybody. People aren't just kind of born courageous. Courage is not natural, but it's also not accidental. The courage to do and say the right thing, even if it costs you, involves desiring and practicing the right thing day in and day out in small ways at all times. In other words, it involves integrity. And I want to think about that for a little bit, really built off of the couple of verses that talk about Daniel's faultless life and his habitual practice of prayer that got him in trouble. Integrity, integrity is born out of that word integer, which means a whole number. And if you think about it, to be people of integrity like Daniel was, is to be somebody who is not divided, not fractured, not one way in certain instances and another in others, or confused about what's right and wrong. It is to be whole, complete. And in a very simple way of describing it, it's to have your believing and your doing aligned. That what you do, how you act, is aligned with what you believe. Because what we do reveals what we actually believe. The things that we act on and how we live reveals what is truly important to us, what we value, what we'll say yes or no to. One of the challenges as we think about even that, the believing and doing being aligned to be people of integrity, is the statistics aren't great for Christians and their moral life with regards to following God's ways. We say we believe in God and want to follow his ways, but our marriages fall apart at pretty much the same rate as everyone else. We have people addicted to porn, struggling with their own lives of health and finances and relationships. We are broken and fallen people who don't look much different than people who don't believe in God at all. And on top of that, nowadays, I think there's a lot of marks of hypocrisy amongst Christians where political partisanship that gets incredibly intense, or just self-righteousness and meanness. I know not everyone does that, but one of the things that I've heard, and statistics will bear this out as well, is that one of the primary hindrances 
to people who don't believe in God, hearing the gospel or wanting to believe in it is Christians themselves. The Christians that they've known don't resemble the Jesus that they've heard of. And they don't really want to hear the message anymore. I guess it makes sense, too. I mean, think about it like, I'm your pastor, right? I'm your pastor, and I am great at teaching. You like my messages, right? That's why you keep coming back. I'm pretty good at it. I'm comfortable speaking in front of people. But what if my life didn't align with my beliefs? Would you still listen? What if, what if I was caught in adultery? Or if I had misused funds of the church for my own good? Or you found out I was being constantly verbally abusive to staff and people behind closed doors? Would you still respect my teaching? Would you still listen? No. And you shouldn't. You might still love me or care about me or be concerned about me and my life, hope that I'll turn to repentance. But my messaging, my teaching, would no longer have credibility. That lack of integrity is true for a pastor, but it's also true for all of us called to be made into the image of Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be people of integrity, to have beliefs and doing that align. And so then you actually have to also ask, what do you believe? It's one of the reasons why I push really hard on having theological and intellectual integrity. There, there are many times where we as Christians believe one thing, interpret the Bible in one way, but in other places interpret it the other way or apply it in another way. So sometimes we follow God's ways because that's what we believe. And other times we follow what we think or feel and don't really look at what the Bible says. We lack a theological integrity because we lack an intellectual integrity. And it takes work to do so. It takes not just pulling one or two verses or showing up at church. It takes seeking God, discerning through scripture, in community, in books and sermons and teachings, and following him day in and day out over the course of time to cultivate a whole belief system that understands who God is and what he has done and what he calls us to. You need to know God in order to follow him. And integrity involves knowing and believing the God of the Bible and then acting in line with that belief. But even then, once we get our believing and our doing together, another challenge to integrity is that our public and private lives need to be aligned as well. In other words, it's not just what do you do at work or on social media? Because I know some people, the Christians, religious people, people trying to be moral, they go to work and they're upstanding people. Or on social media, they're very careful. But what do they look like when they're at home? How do their kids, their spouse, think of them? What do they do when they're with their friends and there is no, nobody videoing? Or better yet, the true definition of integrity is often what do you do when you're alone, when no one is looking? You know, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament was that he was enslaved and his master's wife wanted to have sex with him. And he runs away. She would not have told on him. Why does he do it? 
Why does he run away and not just take the pleasure that was offered to him? There was some version of integrity that said, even if nobody sees, God does. Most of us are affected by our circumstances, and our circumstances therefore affect both what we believe and what we do, and especially what we do. But integrity is the sort of thing where you are unchanged by circumstances. In other words, you're going to be honest because you believe that's the right thing to do, regardless of whether it advantages you or not. And that's a challenge for any of us because, like, let's say that you are somebody who um, seeks people's approval. You'll be honest unless you're worried that it's going to cost you people's approval of you. Or if control is really important to you, you'll be honest unless it causes you to lose money or position or whatever else was giving you that control. In those instances, you'll fudge. The circumstances will affect you. But when your belief and your doing are aligned and your public and your private are aligned, you're able to have that integrity. A good way to think about it visually is a Venn diagram. So in a Venn diagram, you have overlapping circles, but they don't align completely. For most of us, our believing and our doing align somewhat. Our public and our private lives align somewhat, maybe more than others. There's some version of, okay, here's where my, what I believe and what I'm doing actually comes together. But at other points, I'm maybe swayed by what people think or my circumstances or what I feel and want in that moment, even though I know it's against my beliefs. But integrity is having one circle. It's when all of those things align completely. It's a life where our beliefs and our actions are aligned, where our public and our private lives are aligned. Integrity is a life that is whole in all places at all times. And when it's not, we see it and we repent. How do we get there? Well, one of the things I think it's, it's pretty you know, necessary to understand is that integrity is cultivated. Integrity is cultivated or built intentionally and over time. You know, Daniel was a public official. So think about this for just a minute. Um, Daniel lived in an era hundreds of years before Christ, so 2,600 years ago, 2,500 years ago. Daniel lived in an era as a public official when there was no freedom of the press, when you didn't protest leaders, when there wasn't freedom of speech. In other words, he lived in a culture and an era when there was no scrutiny for people in positions of power. The powerful could get away with anything do anything they wanted. And for 70 years, for 70 years by this time, Daniel has been living as a high official in the government of Babylon through now three kings. He could get away with anything he wanted and nobody would say anything. And yet, when these enemies come and start scouring his life, investigating him, trying to dig up dirt, trying to impeach him, trying to get him out of there, trying to kill him, he's not afraid. He has nothing to hide, even though for 70 years he could do whatever he wanted and no one would stop him. He had the power to use his position and authority for his own good, his own well-being, for his own wealth, his own pleasure, his own lifestyle. 
And it would have been very normal. Everyone else probably did it. But he doesn't. How did he do this? It was 70 years of daily devotion and obedience to God. Loving God and cultivating that love. Walking in obedience and daily steps and doing it again and again and again. To understand kind of how we cultivate that, that sort of integrity, we have to understand how the will and a built character look together. So your will, when we talk about the will, it's the decision or action center of a person. It's where I make my choices. It's what I desire and intend and want. It's the choosing center of a person. Character, character is what the will chooses by default. It's your natural bent and leaning in any given moment. It's what you think and feel and then act on in that moment. So a person's character exists whether they have good character or bad character, but their character is the summation of their natural and default will choices. But what you think about and what you feel, which kind of feeds your will, what you're thinking and feeling in any given moment, what you think and feel is not incidental. In other words, it doesn't just happen in the moment. Thinking and feeling, what we think and feel, is actually cultivated over time as well. Your will, your desires, what you want, or to put it another way, the things you love, are shaped by what you do. James K. Smith talks about this in his writings. The things we do and the things we do habitually, again and again over time, they're actually doing something to us. They're shaping our loves, our will, and therefore our character. He says, you are what you love, and you love most what you do most often. So that's where another word comes in that's really kind of helpful, habits. Integrity does not happen accidentally. It's not like some people are just born with integrity or they're good at it. They're a natural, like a prodigy on the piano who just picks it up at age two and just starts playing the piano. Integrity does not happen accidentally. It's not much different than, say, a resume or a credit report. Why, if you're hiring somebody, do you not only look at their resume, but you look at their past things that they've accomplished, their past performance? You talk to people who have worked with them. A credit report is basically a description of your past behavior and actions with regard to spending. That's because past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. In other words, integrity is cultivated. Integrity is cultivated and built intentionally over time. The habits we choose day in and day out, the life that we are living now in day-to-day -day moments is building up a character that is one with integrity or that is moved back and forth depending on the circumstances. So how do we cultivate this um, integrity? I'm going to give us a couple of uh, simple words. It's take stock, take steps, and take someone. This is my own making this up. But in one way, one of the most important things we need to do is take stock, be honest with ourselves. What are our weaknesses and our holes? 
Do I have theological integrity or do I need to spend the next few years cultivating an understanding of who God is and what he has done? What are the places that I need to be involved in in order to do that? What things should I be reading, thinking about? People should I be talking to? Some of us lack self-awareness. We need to have other people speak into our lives, a counselor, a good friend, to be honest about where our public and private lives don't align, where our actions are not what our beliefs are, and ultimately to repent of those things and know God offers forgiveness. So first take stock, then take steps. I talked at the beginning of our uh, CCV at home this morning that we're approaching Lent, and it's a season when people often take things off of their life and add things on. And so it's, you know, sometimes people stop um, eating certain foods or they start taking on prayer. And I would say this could be a season where you begin to take steps of cultivating the sort of integrity that you want in your life based on who you know God is and what he has called you to. So think about the sort of things that maybe you need less of in your life. And what does it look like to replace them with daily steps like, like Daniel did? Three times a day, he went to the same place and he prayed. And he cultivated that time. And we, we do this, we know this with other things as well, right? Like if you're trying to get healthy, um, you, you don't just all of a sudden stop liking sugar. It takes time. And you cultivate it over time through replacing it with other foods and making choices daily that over the course of time make you a healthier eater or you begin exercising more. You don't just enter your freshman year full of muscles. You begin that freshman year lifting weights. And by the time you're a senior playing on the football team, you are actually 40 pounds of muscle heavier and bigger and stronger. The same is true with our spiritual lives. Lastly, take someone. We're not meant to do this alone. It's not an internal thing. Daniel again and again is doing it with other people. And he's doing it in this instance publicly. That's the great lesson of Alcoholics Anonymous is you're not meant to do this alone. You need other people. So open yourself up. The only way to have integrity is to open yourself up. Okay, so you're probably feeling a little bit guilty, a little bit overwhelmed, and a little bit like I'm just asking you to do stuff. Where do you get the power to do this? Let me tell you, it's not just willpower. It's not just, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go be a better person. Now look, integrity, integrity is character. It's a person who believes and does, they're believing and they're doing, their public and their private are all aligned. It's the one circle. But our actions, the things we do, flow out of a will and your will is your thinking and your feeling, your desires and your wants. Your will is built out of what you love. Your heart. That's the very thing God is after. God is after your heart. He's after a heart that is aligned. Aligned to him. In order to have a heart that's aligned to him, you need to rest in God. To find in him your first love to desire God most. And that means you need to know God loves and cares about you most. That's where we get the good news of the gospel. And actually we see it in the story of Daniel himself. You know, Daniel is not just an example. He is what theologians call, what biblical scholars call a type of Christ. 
In other words, he's not just an example, go do what Daniel did. Rather, his life is one that points ahead to Christ. When we see Daniel, we're getting a glimpse, a shadow of the reality of Christ, of the gospel itself, pointing to the true salvation that God offers us in Jesus. You know, the rest of the story is that after these guys accuse Daniel and they find him up in that room praying, they bring him before the king and say, Daniel broke your law. He's been praying to his God. And if you're king and your laws mean anything, you've got to throw him in the lion's den. And so King Darius was pretty upset about this because he realized he's been duped. But he also has to follow the laws. And so he tries all night long, it tells us in the passage, to find some way to let Daniel go, but he can't. And so the next day, he takes Daniel and he says to him, I hope your God will save you, but I wash my hands of this. And he, Daniel gets tossed into what is a pit and a rock is rolled over the mouth of the pit and he puts his signet ring to seal it and inside is death for sure, the lions. And yet... The next morning, the king, who never slept, rushes out to the what should be Daniel's tomb, has the rock unrolled, and calls out, Daniel, did your God save you? And Daniel says, yes. Yes, my God saved me, and I have been vindicated before him and before you. That's the story of the last chapters in Jesus' life, too. He was blameless before man and before the Father. And yet he's falsely accused by people in power. He's brought before a functional king who wants to have nothing to do with it, but is caught by the law. And he's executed. And he's thrown into a tomb. And a rock is rolled over. And a signet ring puts a seal on it. And in the morning, two days later, he's seen alive. The father brings him to life, and he is vindicated. For us, he takes our place and offers us his love and grace and mercy. You know, if you're able to cultivate the kind of character that has integrity, the oneness of life, if you're the kind of person whose beliefs and your actions publicly, privately align with a Christ-likeness. It does not mean that people are going to like you. It doesn't mean that Christians won't face opposition or false accusations or be marginalized. But even when that does happen, we can know because of Jesus that God knows. He gets it. He too has been falsely accused, though he was blameless. He suffered. He died. No matter what happens to us, you are not alone. The God of the universe has walked through the same thing too. We also know that God saves. Daniel was delivered from the lion's den. You may not be delivered. But Jesus rose from the dead. Which means in the end, lions and fiery furnaces do not win. The people of God will be saved now and in eternity. And all of that tells us the final thing we need to know to walk into this, to cultivate this integrity. It's that God loves you. Christ 
lived a blameless life, died a sinner's death, so that we who are conflicted and hypocritical and actually blameworthy might be forgiven, loved, so that our hungry, clamoring, constantly striving, fearful hearts can be at rest. Let us pray. God, our Father, you are faithful and we are faithless. You are the one who saves and you love us. Draw us to you. Let us know again and again your love for us so that we can walk into the wholeness, the fullness of life, the integrity you have intended for us. In Jesus' name, amen.